What's your name? My name is Mike Petriello. What do you do for a living now? Right now, I, I care for two children all day long, but uh, generally, I am a baseball writer. <laughs> what jobs did you hold before you got into working in baseball? Oh, man. How long do you have? Let's see. Yeah. I worked uh, <laughs> I worked at an arcade on the boardwalk on the Jersey Shore. I volunteered at a hospital uh, like food cafe. I was a digital producer at a video on-demand startup. I worked in public relations for five years, building websites, and I managed websites for a popular bowling company for a year. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Mike Petriello. And we're going to learn the fascinating story of how he did all of those jobs. And then one day he decided to start a blog about the Dodgers. And now he produces all sorts of content across a whole lot of different websites. And he even appeared as one of the broadcasters on the alternative StatCast broadcast for some Major League Baseball playoff games on ESPN. All of that and more is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Seams, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Your intro is way better than mine. <laughs> well, thanks for joining me, Mike. Uh, it's my first time doing this uh, with someone who's not in the same room with uh, with me, but uh, during this coronavirus um, time of our lives, we have to get creative. So thanks for joining me. Yeah, hey, I am happy to have uh, an adult to speak to that is not my wife or my two young children, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of that, um, when you were a young adult, you started Mike Sosha's Tragic Illness. Please explain the name and why you started that blog. Well, the name is, um, it should not be taken as a, a dig towards the health of Mike Sosha in any way. It is, as most things in my life, a Simpsons reference. The famous Simpsons softball episode from, I guess, 1992, where they got ringers for the team, Jose Canseco and Wade Boggs and Mike Sosha, and terrible tragedies befall each and every one of them. Mike Sosha's was that he really actually loved working in the power plant and got radiation poisoning. So when they sang this song at the end, which was a, a takeoff of a, another famous song, uh, they referred to Mike Sosha's tragic illness, uh, his, radi his radiation poisoning. And in 2007, when I started a blog about the Dodgers, which was the style at the time, I thought to myself, uh, well, actually, that's only partially true. I had been using the name as a, a like a handle on Dodger message boards for a few years before that. And then I said, what am I going to call this stupid thing? I know I have an incredibly stupid name uh, that most people won't understand. And he's not even with the Dodgers at the time. I should definitely use that name. So that's what I did. And I guess I can say for it, it is memorable, at least. Without question. So you were living in New York, as you are now, and yet the Dodgers were your team. And I'm wondering why the Dodgers and how that impacted you staying up late at night to follow the team on a day-to-day -day basis and still be able to write about them. 
Yeah, I'm from New Jersey originally. And although I've went to school in Boston and I live in New York now, the, the furthest west I have ever lived is 10th Avenue in Manhattan. That is as, as far as I've gotten. Um, but I have been a Dodger fan since I was uh, seven years old. And that was because when I played T-ball when I was six and then again when I was seven, I happened to be on the Dodgers, which just meant my little blue T-shirt had a screen printed word that said Dodgers on it. And when I was seven, that just so happened to be 1988. And I think you know what happened to the Dodgers in 1988. Uh, it also helped that at the time the Yankees were unwatchably bad, right? <laughs> like right. This is the Alfaro Espinosa years. I don't know why I never got into the Mets. My dad's a huge Mets fan. Uh, but anyway, Dodgers. And I, I vividly remember like the next year, I'm still, you know, eight years old being all excited because like Tim Belcher threw a nice game and they moved up from fourth place to third place uh, or whatever. And yeah, it kind of went from there. Mike Piazza was my favorite player when I was like in high school and, and probably to this day still remains my favorite player. And you're right there. There were a lot of late nights, but not until later on, because I didn't really have the capability to watch them uh, on a daily basis until 2005. I was already out of college by that point. So 2005 through let's say 2015 or so would probably be like my peak staying up late uh, years. Um, Now I have children that makes it a little more difficult now I work for Major League Baseball, so you know I'm still a Dodger fan, but definitely not as as serious of one as I once was. So I don't do it so much anymore. But yeah, there were a lot of a lot of nights where I stayed up until two o'clock in the morning, pretty much every night. Okay, so I have a theory about a lot of blogs, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Someone is upset at their favorite team. They they want the manager fired. They want the general manager fired. They don't like how much money the owner is spending. They want the owner to sell. And so they get really excited and they create a blog and, and they write about how all these people on their favorite team they hate. And then somewhere between three months and nine months in, they run out of things to say. Why were you able to keep churning out content? I'm stubborn, I guess. <laughs> um, so the the vlog started in 2007. And like much of my career, I, I owe it to good timing. That was a really good time to be a baseball writer with some understanding of uh, analytics, right? Because that was when, you know, obviously baseball perspectives is been putting out books since like 1996 or whatever but that was really when it started to become a lot more mainstream like fan graphs had just fired up moneyball the, the book had come out not that long ago and uh the dodgers had hired ned coletti and he was doing things like giving juan pierre a giant contract and taking playing time away from matt Kemp. i will say many years later my opinion of ned coletti is, is higher now than it, it probably should have been at the time uh but even so it was really easy for me to say don't play juan pierre like play matt Kemp. he's really really good um, and I did that for yeah a while and, and people seemed to dig it. Like I think at, at the time, like right now that would, that blog would not stand out you know, in any way whatsoever. But at the time there were not a lot of team specific outlets for blogs that had uh, some moderate amount of intelligence uh, so far as people tell me and some amount of being entertaining. Like right now, everybody writes like that or tries to, I think at the time, uh, you know, newspapers were still king, right? Like all the, the beat writers were some very good, right? Some still very good. A lot of them were kind of dinosaurs. You know, you wouldn't get much that you wouldn't have just gotten from reading the box score. And so I started doing it. People seemed to like it. And, um, you know, this is like the pre-Twitter days, like the comment section started to become like a little bit of a community. And that 
uh, kind of gave me motivation to keep going. And then, you know, I started picking up uh, some paid gigs out of it. You know, our, our mutual friend, John Wiseman, was one of the first to, you know, give me any sort of job that paid me money. And I was like, hey, this is cool. I don't ever think this is going to be a career, but I like it. And um, if I stop doing it, then I'm just a guy who has a career I don't care that much about. So this gives me something else to put my energy into. Yeah. So what were you doing uh, for money for to pay the bills? You know, because this was clearly just something you were doing in, in your spare time. Like, And so h- how much time could you devote? Uh, I realize this is a double barreled question, which I shouldn't ask, but start with what were you doing for, for money? And then how did that allow you the time to to focus on this blog? That was a very weird time in my life. Um, so I graduated college in 2003, Boston University. Um, and actually, the, the first job I ever had in baseball was I was an intern at Nesson my senior year. So that Nesson is New England Sports Network, who does the Red Sox and Boston Bruins games. Um, but anyway, after that, I, I got a job at this video on demand startup that no longer exists, a little bit of ahead of its time. And it, it was fine. It you know, gave the bills and gave me some valuable experience. And um, I had sort of fallen out of love with the Dodgers for a few years. Uh, that started when they traded Mike Piazza in 98 and like I was you know 16 or whatever and crushed because he was my all-time favorite player and then I go to college and I'm on the other side of the country and I have other things to worry about and you know the Kevin Maloon era Dodgers weren't super fun to follow anyway um, and then anyway in 2004 I remember like the uh, Paula Duca trade which was super interesting to me and I remember watching the Jose Lima playoff game with a buddy of mine and saying oh yeah I, I actually do really love the Dodgers and I started, uh, I have not answered your question. I realize this. I promise That's I will. Okay. <laughs> I started, uh, you know, following Dodgers, Dodger thoughts and John Wiseman and posting on a message board. Uh, anyway, so I was working at this video on demand startup through the end of 2006 and it was going nowhere. And I had a very serious relationship end and I'm like 25 and I'm like, okay, now what? So, um, I decided I was going to move to New York which is a, just a brilliant idea with no job lined up before the economy collapsed. Um, I So I, I did eventually move to New York, but it took me like eight months of living back with my parents. And during that time, I was semi-employed. I actually uh, had a previous life at MLB.com. I had a remote job for them um, and it wasn't a lot of hours, so I had a ton of time to kill. So what was I doing for money at the time? Making a few bucks on an hourly job, not paying rent, um, and then eventually I, I got a job, uh, semi full time with MLB.com during 2007, uh, continued to write and then foolishly quit that job right before the economy blew up. I, I have not made the best choices. I have to be honest. They have worked out for me. At, at the peak of Mike Sosha's tragic illness, how much traffic was coming to the site each day? That's a tough question. It was, it was over, you know, it was in the millions per year, right? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what it was per day. It's not like I ever made a ton of money, you know, like little ad buys here and ad traffic there. But um, yeah, the peak was probably like, oh, you know, 2011, 12, 13 ish. You know what it was? Um, the the darkest time of recent Todger history was when the Frank McCourt situation blew up. I got to tell you, that was an amazing time to write about the Dodgers. <laughs> there was so much content to get into. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I remember when I first started as a writer, I was told the best teams to cover are the last place teams and the first place teams, that the That's 500 right. teams are the most boring. And yeah, there, there was there was a lot going on um, back then. The um, Los Angeles Weekly, LA Weekly, named you the best sports blog in uh, 2011. So like like who knew that, that blogs got, um, got, got awards? But when that happened, 
what did you think about where were you in your in your thought process of being able to turn this into uh, a real career? Not even close at all. I, I so in in 2009 I got this job at a PR firm and I spent five years there. Um, uh, interestingly enough, directly across the street from where our office is now in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, you know, building websites, really good experience. It, it paid pretty well. Like you could easily make that a career for the rest of your life. I don't care about building websites for giant pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> you know, it's it's a job, right? And I liked the health insurance and I liked the full time salary, but I, you know, great people. I learned a lot. But anyway, you know, I I had picked up increasingly more side gigs. Like uh, there was this, I don't think it exists anymore, but this fantasy baseball magazine called Heater Magazine. Uh, the guy who ran it had this really interesting idea. He paid team specific experts like a few bucks a month to give playing time estimates, right? So he could really like tune his playing time based on, oh, you think this guy's not going to play that much going forward because a great idea. Uh, he got bought out by Baseball Prospectus. So and then I wrote some probably crappy fantasy articles for them for a year or two. And then uh, my one of my good friends now is Ido Saris, who asked me to come over to Fangraphs and, and write for them, which I'm so grateful that I did. But still, this is all side gigs, right? Like I did not have my first full-time job in, major, in baseball, until I was 34, right? <laughs> so, and what year was that? 2016. Okay, so that's basically a decade after you started. Yes. Law. Yes. It was. It was mostly for fun. It was for like the side benefits, like you know, you make some cool connections, right? I got to go on TV a bunch, Dumblebee Network. Um, I flew out uh, to LA for the 2013 NLDS when they played the Braves. Because uh, a buddy of mine had an extra ticket. And I was like, great, I'll go and I'm going to stay. And I don't have a ticket for the, the second home game, which I think was game four. But I'm going to find one. And uh, I tweeted about it. And then like 10 minutes later, uh, Josh, who ran the Dodgers Twitter at the time, was like, hey, I got a ticket for you. Like yeah. that was that was the cool stuff. And like Twitter was starting to get big. And, you know, people think you have a, a good opinion. And, and writing for Fangraphs obviously is a cool thing in the baseball world. But I, I don't think I ever really thought that a, a full-time baseball career, especially uh, paying what I would need it to pay living in New York city and, and hoping to start a family was ever going to be that realistic. Well, I, I want to compliment you because uh, a lot of people listen to this podcast know that I was in Los Angeles, 2008, nine, 10, 11, doing uh, a variety of things, probably most known for post-game Dodger talk. And I feel like that was a time when blogs really started to come into their own. I know that Josh Rawich, who was at the Dodgers at the time, um, he went out of his way to embrace the the blog community, knowing that this was publicity for his team. And there was a lot of really good writers. You mentioned John Wiseman and Eric Steven and forget the uh, Chad, who was in uh, Hawaii, I think. Ch who was Chad Moriyama, yeah. uh, who still writes uh, Dodgers yeah. Digest. Yeah. It, it felt like it was just this really interesting time. And, and I admit that when I was a newspaper writer in my previous life, you know, I kind of looked down on 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 anyone who was writing on like a website initially, and it took me a while before I before I came to my senses and realized that good writing is good writing, and, and smart people are smart people no matter you know what what the platform is. And, and I remember like reading on a regular basis yourself and Eric and a bunch of other people, and just realizing that there's a lot of really interesting things that can. Um, that can be said that are not being written in a newspaper. And especially as someone who was on Dodger talk and needed a hot take every night, or at least a medium uh, take on, on a somewhat regular basis, I, I found it really, I, I just found it really illuminating to, to be able to read a variety of other stuff. So this is a really meandering question. That's more of a statement, but mostly it's um, no, I always, I was always impressed with your work. And I'm just wondering 
kind of how you found your voice and and where you decided that this is what I'm going to write about that's not necessarily what you're going to see in the newspaper and it's not necessarily fire everyone. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I would say it was much, much easier at the time than it is now because any successful baseball writer now, whether it's you know for a newspaper or like a newspaper-ish website like The Athletic, right? Uh, you know the great writers like like you know Dodger specific like Pedro Amora, you know, and, and Andy McCullough, they have a similar voice now. That is so mainstream, you can't really break in that way now. But yeah, at the time it was partially what do I find uh, interesting and entertaining, and what I remember finding a a great deal of value from was the. The beat writers, uh, who you know, some of them I liked and some of them I didn't, but they all had kind of a general like high level, you know, here's what happened, here's what the quotes are. And there were so many times where they would have something really interesting uh, and not even realize it, right? So that would be like, oh god, this this guy said he did what? I'm gonna go write a thousand words on that because that's super interesting. And you just buried it in like paragraph nine, right? Like that was the kind of, of cool stuff I found because um, I, you know, I wanted to I wanted to talk about what I thought. As a as a fan at the time, like was interesting. You know, why is this guy better than you think? Or you know, why do I think the team is really shooting themselves in the foot by by doing that? Um, you know, you, there were definitely times where you know I probably was too much of an asshole about it. Where it's like you're trying to make a name for yourself, you throw a bomb here and there. I I definitely regret not being nicer at points. Um, but you know, you're, you're trying to get get out there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you get the feedback really quickly. I think in that kind of thing, cause you have the comments right there and you have the traffic right there. Either people are reading it and they're interested in it, uh, or they're not, you know, and that helps right away. You know, and I just, just hearing you say about how a story, uh, like a, something that you found really interesting got buried in paragraph nine. And I feel like that's, that's the problem for newspapers when it's just about getting the quotes in and getting the story out so that it can be in tomorrow's newspaper. Whereas when you have more time, and this is what makes the athletics so good, or in the stuff that you're doing now, that you have the time to be able to write a thousand words about about this one quote, whereas you don't necessarily have the time to do that on deadline. And I, I find that part fascinating about how the baseball world has changed and how we're consuming media and, and how just we're able to do like these think pieces when before it was all about, no, we just need a regurgitation of what happened last night in a few quotes. Yeah, I think part of that is because the the fans and the the audience is just so much smarter now. You know, when I was a kid, you'd read the gamer in the paper uh, because that was the way you would know who won the game. You know, if if you didn't like for me specifically not growing up with the Dodgers television network near me, that's how I would know the next day. Like, oh, did the Dodgers win last night? Maybe I wouldn't know because they'd missed deadline and <laughs> would say, oh, we didn't we didn't get it in. Who even knows? And any. Uh, informed opinion was was generally from the newspapers or the broadcast or there'd be like the one tenth of one percent of people who would order the bill james pamphlets you know and think about things a little bit yeah. differently now it's different now people don't care about game stories they don't need to know they, they can look up the score on 26 different websites they can watch the game uh well i was gonna say they could watch the game from wherever but i think we know that's not necessarily true <laughs> right. you know what i'm trying to say yeah. there um and i i think the audience demands more they don't just want to know okay well you know justin turner went two for three and, and drove in a run in the fourth you know they want to um, have an interesting story about how he changed his swing to become the star he is, you know, or have Alex Wood talk to you about how he changed the grip on his curveball to, to add more depth. And it doesn't have to be all analytical and nerdy like that, right? They want to know that the players as people um, and really understand what's going on. I mean, that's what I think about a lot with the StatCast stuff we do is baseball is super duper weird right now. 
you know, like with the shifts and the launching on all of it, like you've got to be able to explain it to people um, and also be interesting. And I think that was not necessarily the demand, you know, 25, 30 years ago, or it was just recap what happened. So when you made the switch to become a baseball writer full time, um, who who had more doubts, you or your wife? Oh, she was stoked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the part of that was um, uh, I had been. I think I skipped part of my jobs here. So let's see. I worked at this PR firm for five years. And, you know, like I said, good money, good job. But, I, you know, once I started having to do all these pharmaceutical websites, it was I, like I had to quit. I, I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and I went to be an editor at Sports on Earth and write at Fangraphs. That was like my first, like, I'm going to jump into try to do a freelance thing for a year. We were kind of freshly married. Uh, we had no kids yet. So you could do that. And then Sports on Earth blew up. And my, my wife got pregnant. And I'm like, oh, I need to get a job like right now. So I got a job um, at this uh, entertainment company. It's a bowling company. So Bullmore, uh, Bolero, AMFs, if you're familiar with all those. And I managed their website for a year because I needed the money and the health insurance. And um, let's see. My wife is like five months pregnant. We are on a last pre-baby trip. We went to San Francisco, which we had never been to before. Uh, and I got a call from a former editor. I should pause here to say that when I worked for Fangraphs, we had a content sharing partnership with ESPN. So once a week, uh, I would submit an article to ESPN. And um, I got to be friendly with my editor there, who's Matt Myers. And eventually he quit and moved on to MLB.com. And like a year later, he calls me. So this is April 2015, like three or four weeks after StackCast came online. And he calls me up and he says, hey, I need someone who can write about Stackcast. I don't know if we have anybody here who can do it. Will you do it? Uh, but the thing is, it's not a full-time job offer. It's a it's a contract offer, like submit two or three pieces a week. And I thought, well, that seems interesting. Um, I'll still keep my bowling job because I need the money. But yeah, cool. And then basically for the next year, my I was very hopeful that would turn into something more. So when I eventually called my wife and said, hey, uh, this is now a year later in 2016, our son is like five months old. Um, hey. Uh, not only did they offer me a job, but they agreed to match what I was making. And she was like, great, great, wonderful. Do it. You'll be so much happier. I'll be so much happier. We'll, we'll all be so much happier. You don't have to take a pay cut. Wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love, I mean, I love these kind of stories. And this was kind of the whole premise of, of this podcast when I started it was finding people who come from different backgrounds, but they have a passion for something and they figure out a way to do it because it's just, I'm sure that you, that you hear all the time, oh, I wish I could write baseball all the time, or that's what I wanted to do. And you especially hear that as a broadcaster. Oh my God, as a kid, that's all I ever wanted to do. And and a lot of times when people say, well, like, how'd you do it? And I said, well, I just did it. I, I just I just figured out a way. I just hung in there. And so uh, without getting too much, oh, what would you tell the kids out there? Uh, but but what are the biggest lessons about what it took in order to, to do what you've ultimately done? Uh, sticking with it, as you alluded to before, you know, like it's it's not hard to write one great article. It is hard to come up with something new to write about constantly every single day, especially like having had a little bit of time on the editorial side, having uh, authors who can come at you with you know good pitches regularly. That's one thing. Um, two is, is hopefully being easy to work with. Like if you have a deadline, make it right. Mm-hmm. And I, that even goes back to my my PR days where I was the one. I was a project manager and I was hiring designers and developers, you know, and after a while you realize you're not just picking the best, the most talented people. You're picking the ones who will actually like be easy to work with and get the job done. Um, And, you know, try to have, this is specific to writing, I guess, but like try to have a a unique approach or voice. Like, like I said, in 2007, being a 
hopefully, uh, you know, entertaining stats writer was a weird and unique thing. It's not now. You can't be that now because everybody's that now. Um, and, you know, not everybody's going to be a writer, right? Maybe you want to be a, a database guy or, or who knows. But uh, as far as writing goes, yeah, like it's got to be uh, constant and consistent and unique. And whether it's good, I think other people will tell you that, you know, like you'll, you'll know pretty quickly if people are interested in what you have to say. All right. So I'm going to take us on a kind of a, a, a different direction here slightly because I kind of want to get into sort of the history of StatCast and the history of sort of the statistical revolution. And I mean, look, there's been people that have been using stats for a long time. Earl Weaver loved platoons and he hated bunning and he was all about walks and three run homers and pitching. But I think that for people of our era, they think of Moneyball, which was the 2002 season and the book came out in 2003. So I'm going to ask you a question knowing that it's impossible to, to give an answer. But if it wasn't for that book going mainstream, how much longer would it have taken before you think the statistical revolution would have started to pick up the steam that it did? That's a really, that's a good question. I don't think that much longer because I think that is obviously a, a big, huge uh, first part of it. But I don't think it was just about the book, right? I think pretty quickly after that, the Red Sox win the World Series and they break the curse and Theo Epstein is is leading that team. And then four years later, uh, Pitch Effects comes online. So that's that's the predecessor to StatCast, right? So Pitch Effects is the first time you can get reliable uh, pitch velocity, pitch type, pitch movement, like so much of the statistical knowledge we have just came out of that. And that was going to come regardless of whether a book was written or not. It probably would have taken a little bit longer for people who weren't like into this to, to really understand it and really like get into it. And, you know, I would argue that the movie probably had as much to do with that <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as the book did. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it would have delayed it by that much. I think the, the opening of pitch effects is really what blew this up because then uh, a ton of people started writing about this and talking about it and getting on TV with it. And that, that was like the big door for me. Uh, I found some quote from, this was you, 2019, oh 2019 Sabre Analytics Conference. Uh, and this is your quote. The hardest part of my job is knowing that I'm writing to an audience that still thinks RBIs are the coolest thing in the world. And a lot of players and coaches come from that background. You can't really go to a player and tell them they need to change their laminar flow you have to approach it in a different way and say, if you change this, we think your batting average against will drop by 20 points and maybe you'll make 4 million more next year as more and more players buy into this and gain success. Now, every team has five relievers who suddenly throw ridiculous sliders because they've learned how to use this information. Um, I love that quote, especially just because it starts with RBIs and how much RBIs used to matter and how much RBIs still matter. And... Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to frame this question. How hard is it still to this day to talk to an audience that thinks that RBIs are the coolest thing in the world? Was was that only a year ago? Yeah. That feels like five years ago. Well, maybe um, it was uh, maybe it was 2018. And they- no, 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 no. I know. I'm sure you're right. I'm just saying, like, I think everything feels like it was five years ago <laughs> right now. Um, I, there's a two pronged uh, answer to that. One is in terms of what I said about the players. Um, that has changed massively even in the last year. Uh, every single player knows what this stuff is now, especially the pitchers, right? Like um, there was an, a quote from The Athletic a couple weeks ago from Nate Pearson, who is a Toronto Blue Jays uh, top prospect. And he's just dropping uh, you know, his, his spin efficiency numbers off the top of his head like it's absolutely nothing. And everybody does that now. Not necessarily, like Clayton Kershaw is probably not going to go do that. Some of the more established guys. But every younger guy comes up and they at least understand this stuff i remember last year we wrote a thing about how every 
uh, spring training park or every spring training bullpen had the new technology like the rep soto and the hydrotronic and there's a quote from i can't remember who it was some like uh, you know decent ish veteran lefty type it might have been like wade leblanc or somebody like him where he was like you know two years ago you come at me with this stuff i would have laughed you out of town and now it's like oh i'm only average i, I want to get better this will make me better i need to use it you know and i think what really spurred that was the guys like josh donaldson justin turner jd martinez who turned themselves from like okay players or backups into stars and, and got huge contracts like that's that helps everybody else looking at that so i don't think what i said about the players is, is true anymore i think you you know you got to pick your spots not every player's but a lot of guys now um in ways you couldn't have imagined like three years ago are very up on this stuff so far as uh the audience goes you know that's still true uh, especially at MLB.com, very different from what I wrote for Fangraphs, right? Obviously, um, but you know, there's no baseball fan who doesn't at least understand what exit velocity and launch angle are, are referring to now. The biggest part of my job, I think, is to be a, a communicator to explain this like really complicated stuff that people way smarter than I have come up with in a way that's interesting and entertaining. And if you can do that, like for example, uh, as you mentioned, I've done the the alternate broadcast on ESPN, the Statcast focus broadcast for the last two wildcard games, and the first one went 13 innings. So that's like eight and a half hours worth of baseball. And I think I said the word launch angle like three times. You know, like you don't you don't have to be annoying uh, and an algebra professor about it. And I think what people want now is just explaining why the the teams are doing these things. They don't want broadcasters who are you know complaining about back in their day and saying oh the shift is killing baseball and all this kind of stuff they want to be able to understand why and uh, if i can do that either on tv or in an article then 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 i've done the job and i think that's really the main goal right now um i want to ask you about the shift in a minute but i kind of want to follow up on that because this is almost like i want to give you i want you to give me some advice so in the minor leagues, we don't have access to launch angle and spin rate and, and a lot of things like that. And, and if it is there, teams consider it proprietary information. The miners, they don't want to share it. Um, and in general, I'm of the belief that giving stats on the radio is hard for people to comprehend. And it's really hard for them to comprehend something that they're not used to hearing. So they know counting stats. They know what a 300 average is. They know what 30 home runs are. And over the last few years, I absolutely mix in on-base percentage and slugging percentage and, and, and whip and, and, and strike out per nine innings and walk per nine innings and, and try to do things like that. When it comes to ERA plus or fielding in, in, independent percentage or isolated slugging, I feel like the audience is just going to totally lose their mind if I'm trying to drop this in a minor league baseball play-by-play -play broadcast. Um, what's your advice for both broadcasters and for fans about how I can disseminate the information and how people can understand it so that will make sense. Context is obviously the number one thing. I, I don't have a radio bro uh, broadcast background, so I, I think about it more from a, a TV point of view. And obviously, we've got more flexibility with graphics uh, than you might. But if you were to, to let's say, say ERA+, plus, you don't have to say ERA+. Plus. You don't have to say he's got a 115 or 100 is league average. You can just say uh, he's 15% better than average. Right. And you know that that's backed up by something. And if you, you know, maybe it's a pitching change and you've got time to go into it because you can lay out or whatever. Uh, you know, same thing with like a weighted runs created plus. You know, you can say, you know, this guy's hitting 240, but based on how much he gets on base and his power, he's actually 10% better as a hitter than league average. You don't have to go into the, the history of the stat or how it was made. Um, and some stats play better than others, like spin rate. It's not interesting, even for me, 
to say that a guy has a spin rate of 2,636 RPMs, right? That's a, a big, somewhat meaningless number to a lot of people. But if I can say, listen, uh, among all starters this year, he's got the fourth highest spin rate out of 200 guys. That tells you something right there. You may not know what a good spin rate means, right? Maybe you need to explain it because it's newer, but right away you can say, hey, this guy's top five or this guy's in the 98th percentile. Uh, same, you know, exit velocity is kind of easier to grasp because, you know, it's hitting the ball hard. Uh, you can say, hey, this guy hits the ball harder than anybody on the team or harder than any third baseman in baseball. You haven't even used the number right there, but you know it's backed up by by science. So if anybody challenges you on it, you're not just pulling it out of your, your behind, right? Like right. that's that's kind of the way I got to it. Now it's it's different on the Statcast focused broadcast because you've got a, you're expected to you know show a little more science, and we've actually got a regular broadcast simultaneously that we need to set ourselves apart from. Mm-hmm. But for a regular show, for like for your purposes. You can get really interesting and not tell people this guy's the best reliever because he's got 29 saves. You know, you can say, hey, this guy's top five in strikeout rate because he's top five in, you know, vertical drop on his curveball or whatever the case may be. When it comes to doing a story, by the way, I really like that answer. And that, and that makes a lot of sense, especially the part that's just, you know, he's 15 percent better. And I think that's just a really easy way to consume things. And I think that that's I think that that's something for the major mm-hmm. leagues that works. I feel like I deal in such small sample sizes in the minor leagues because if someone's good, they're not going to be there for very long. (laughs) (laughs) Your park factors are nutty too. Yeah. Plus the PCL. Yeah. And it's not just Albuquerque. Then we go on the road to Reno and we go to Las Vegas and we go to uh, El Paso and Salt Lake. And and it's just as nutty in those places. Um, And so a lot of times you're just trying to keep up with the number of runs uh, that are being scored. Uh, but, But I do think that that's really... I think that's just really smart and really interesting. And, um, and yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make it a point if we ever play baseball this year. <laughs> try and oh, man. Dagger to the heart right here. <laughs> yeah. Um, when it comes to, uh, you, you mentioned the shift a couple of times when it, I, I, I want to know, like in general, this is going to be hard for you to specifically answer, but <clears throat> a, I have an idea. B, I need to research the ID idea. C, I need to write the story. Like how long does it take? to figure out who's being hurt the most by the shift, whether that's a pitcher or whether that's a hitter or who's being, who's benefiting the most um, from shifts as a pitcher. Um, how easily accessible is that information to people like you who follow this and to the public who might want to follow it more? I, I hate that question so much and not that not shaming you for asking it because it comes up a lot, understandably, and it is borderline impossible to answer. I don't have a good answer to that question. Um, for, there's a lot of reasons, but the, the two most straightforward reasons are um, if you're looking at performance uh, with the shift and against the shift and you're comparing that across like a large population of, of players, you are really comparing different levels of talent, not comparing what happens on the shift. And what I mean by that is Chris Davis, uh, Baltimore's Chris Davis, he's obviously not a very good hitter these days. He gets shifted all the time. And then you've got these guys you know, maybe these righty all fields types like a DJ LeMahieu or Jose Altuve, who are very good hitters, they don't get shifted at all. So if you're just comparing you know, who performance against the shift or or with the shift, you're comparing different players, which really makes that difficult. It's hard to do it like, you know, when a guy is shifted against or when he's not, because then you're either getting into small samples or you have guys who are like 100% 0% anyway. And that makes that analysis really difficult. The other thing is, when does a guy get uh, lose a hit to the shift? And it's, it may seem like you can see that visually, but I, I can't tell you how many times I've watched a broadcast and a lefty 
um, bounces into an out where the right the the second baseman was in short right field and they're like well that was a hit you know taken away by the shift but also that ball went right where he would have been standing anyway it would have been the same four three just a shorter four three so is that a shift out I I don't know um, a lot of smart people have tried to come up with this I haven't found any satisfying answers. Uh, there's just, there's so much that goes into it. The other thing is, and this is literally impossible to uh, quantify. My opinion on this has always been that even if the shift started as a way to take away base hits, that's not actually what it's most effective at now. The the best thing a shift can do is to convince a powerful, um, usually left-handed hitter to actively be worse, right? <laughs> if you can convince Bryce Harper that trying to destroy a baseball is a bad idea and trying to hit a single of the opposite field is a good idea, you've probably done your job, right? That's taking away, you know, value, but that's not really losing a hit to the shift, you know? So it, it, you get down into some wormholes here. It's complicated. Yeah, and I also think that so much of it is a psychological factor as well. Um, you know, the number of guys that I see in the minor leagues who try and drop a butt down to beat the shift and they just can't do it. And as a result, you know, they butt it foul. Or it's now they're down 0-1, and now they panic, and now they swing at the next pitch, which is not close to the strike zone, and now they're down 0-2. Or worse yet, they bunt the ball in the air, and, and the at-bat is over. And I, I see it so many times, I just want to tell guys, and it's not. I feel like, look, I can't be doing this. The broadcaster can't be going up to players and giving them advice. But I just want to say <laughs> stop bunting. Like, don't try and beat the shift. It's just not working at all. Yeah, and then you know what they do is they say, well, I have to keep the defense honest, right? I have to drop down a bunt or go opposite field, and then they'll stop shifting me. Right. And the answer to that is no, they, they won't. Like if you're Joey Gallo and you're going to drop down a bunt, they're not going to stop shifting you. They're going to shift you more because they got you to stop trying to hit home runs. <laughs> like that's that's exactly the point. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing about research, and I know this from from my own, is the number of times that you can just go down a rabbit hole. Right. Where you think you're researching one thing and then you see something. And I know that's the way that my mind works. Ooh, ooh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, bright shiny thing and the next thing you know i've spent an hour researching something that had nothing to do with the original point yes that happens um pr it's pretty much like 80 percent of my job i think it's just like finding myself down these things where 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 do the best ideas come from when you're writing about Statcast? Uh, that's a that's a couple of different ways um so i work on uh, as part of a larger team um darren willman who creates baseballsavant.com uh tom tango who is a, a Sabermetrics legend at this point. He sits right across from me uh, when we're actually in the office. Uh, and then Jason Bernard is also on his team. Um, a lot of times they have come up with new metrics or we have worked together on new metrics. So I have, you know, a, a long plan where it's like, okay, we're going to get this thing out. Like we just launched infield defense. So I, I wrote about that and we were like excited to do that. Sometimes it's just, I see something interesting in a game. Um, sometimes it is, uh, I click to a leaderboard and I see nine guys I expect and wait a minute, who the hell is that 10th guy? That's really interesting. I need to explain what's going on here. I, sometimes it's not Statcast. You know, sometimes we just write about relatively straightforward baseball stuff in a hopefully interesting way. Or, you know, maybe a trade will go down and we'll we'll write like the standard trade stories and I'll have an, a take like, wow, hey, this guy in, in this new ballpark, he might be really good. You know, sometimes it's supporting like that. Um, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time supporting our larger network of, of writers and even uh, partners from, you know, ESPN and, and anywhere else. Um, so yeah, article ideas can kind of come from anywhere. There's no like one right answer to that. If, um, 
if we were not in this alternate reality that we're in right now um, and baseball season is underway, explain kind of a, um, a normal week for you. How often are you in the office? Um, how often do you head out to, uh, to Citibank or, I mean, not, not Citibank, but City Field or Yankee Stadium to check out games? How often are you just watching games from the office? Uh, kind of explain kind of a normal week. In the office five days a week, it's like a, you know, 9.30 to 5-ish because I've got to get out and pick up my son from from school. Um, I don't go to the park as much as I used to or would like to. And that is uh, almost entirely because of children. Uh, my son is four and my daughter is one and my wife works full time as well. So it's it's a little harder than it used to be to get out to the parks. It's also, uh, I found that when I do it, it's more for fun than work. Like my job the way I approach baseball is a lot easier if I have a couple of games up on my TV and my laptop in front of me and a, and a second monitor like I've got right here. Um, I like going to the ballpark. It's great to you know get in the clubhouse and, and see if I can talk to players, um, but it's not really what I'm paid to do. So I just don't get to do it as much as I would like to. Uh, and then separately, obviously, we do the, the broadcast for ESPN, which we were supposed to have like five or six of this year, which I don't know if that's going to happen anymore. Obviously, that gets me out to the ballpark. Uh, but yeah, it's it's more of an office job than I think you would think. Obviously, there are games on during the day that we'll have on. Um, I will come home and certainly watch as much baseball as I can in the evening. But uh, it's it's a little more restrictive than it used to be just because of the demands of, of children. You just said something that I find interesting. And um, I feel like it's kind of how baseball writing has come full circle because, you know, I, I don't know when it was that newspapers – we're all about, we have to get quotes, but I remember, you know, like the Leonard Coppets, um, you know, he would write like these guest columns for the Oakland Tribune and he would often write about how we didn't get quotes. We just watched what we saw and we wrote about it. And then there became this thing where it's all about getting quotes and it's all about trying to get a player to say something, um, and just add context and details or whatever. Um, and now so much now, and, and I don't want to make it seem like Quotes are irrelevant because a lot of the uh, the really interesting feature articles, uh, player profiles are about their background were quotes. But now there's also this other sense of that we can write this really compelling article and it doesn't require us, you know, to to say hello to a player and get and get quotes in the clubhouse. That it's just that it's something else now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And for me personally, like it's hard to get quotes if you're not there every day and you don't have a, a personal relationship and the guys know you and trust you, you know, like the beat writers who are there every day, like they put in the work. Uh, that's, I don't have the opportunity to do that just because that's, that's not what the job is. That's not what my family life allows for. So it's, it's hard to go and get a quote. I, I find myself in the clubhouse and, you know, you end up spending a lot of time and maybe not getting much out of it. And because I'm fortunate to have it, uh, this network of 30 colleagues, like 30 beat reporters, especially in cities I, I don't go to, it, it's a lot easier for me to call up like, uh, you know, uh, Greg Johns in Seattle or somebody and say, hey, can you uh, bug D Gordon about this? I just have like one quick question. And that makes that makes my article better um, and in a better way than if I tried to do it myself because I'm not there. They don't know me. They're not going to want to talk to me. Uh, it is it's easier for me you know, to I know it sounds like the nerd answer. Uh, to stare at my computer all day <laughs> that actually makes me more productive i can watch more games i can see more numbers coming in uh if i i love going to the press box like it's great i love i love the FaceTime with people and just to, to have the atmosphere but uh, i absolutely do not get as much done as i would if i were if i were home or in the office the first time that you were on tv for a broadcast not for like a guest hit on, on mlb network but for the first Statcast alternative broadcast what were how were your emotions well they're they're um, let's see. There's like three different versions of a Statcast broadcast, I guess. There is um, 
we we did some from the MLB Network studios in Secaucus. Um, we did a whole season of them in 2016 from our old studios in Chelsea, New York. And then there are the ESPN versions. So the uh, ESPN versions are the only ones that are actually at the park. And that that for me is huge. I don't I don't really ever want to do it from a studio again because it's really, really hard to to do that. My emotions were um, I wasn't really nervous just because I had been in that studio dozens of times before for the the regular shows you know the studio shows so it was the same desk the same chair like i'm I'm very used to it really all it was was uh instead of like a an hour show i expected like three hours and you know you had to you have to do a lot of research about the players you know it's one thing to say okay yeah anthony rizzo i know anthony rizzo but here comes the uh third catcher coming off the bench and you better know something about him right so like doing a lot of the research even now that's that's very time consuming um but at this point i've been fortunate enough to go on tv many times that being on TV isn't nervous because you can't see the audience, right? You see right. the camera, you see the people you're with, um, and it's and no one's really trying to to set you up to fail. Like it's it's in everybody's best interest that everybody on there looks good, you know. So you're all supporting each other, you're all working together. I, I can't, I don't think I've been nervous since probably like the first time I was on TV like seven years ago. Was was there a pinch me moment? Like I was working for this bowling thing and I was building these websites for these pharmaceutical companies. And now here I am, I'm on ESPN doing a live broadcast. Uh, yeah, I think that the first StatCast broadcast of the wildcard game, because that was also from Wrigley Field, which I mean, I guess the first pinch me moment for having this job was being at the 2016 World Series and seeing the Cubs win. I wasn't on TV. I was just there as a writer. Like That was a really cool thing to do. Um, but as far as TV goes, yeah, uh, not only was it a game at Wrigley it was a game on ESPN it was a playoff game at Wrigley it was an extra inning game and on top of all that we had never done this before we'd done a home run derby but that's like fake baseball this was the first time we had done it for a real game and we didn't know if it was going to work <laughs> and I was like we we had hoped it would work um we had that was the first time that Eddie Eduardo Perez and Jason Benetti uh and our producer Andy Jacobson had done a game together and we didn't know if it was going to work at all or not and it, I felt like it went really well and people really seemed to dig it. And I definitely remember being like, you know, nervous maybe for the first inning. And then it's like the fourth inning and you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is going well. Twitter's like blown up. They dig this text messages. I'm at Wrigley Field calling a playoff game. This is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was there ever a part of you that thought after all of these years of being annoyed at any broadcaster at any sport at any level and wanting to, and yelling at the TV that suddenly there's now someone who's going to be in the living room who's going to be yelling at the TV at me? Um, that's it's ironic, but I'm sure it's um, I know it's true. I've heard from those people like you know <laughs> stat boy nerd. What are you doing? I can tell you that I have gained an enormous amount of respect for the people who are are on the air because I do this like a couple of times a season. And after I do a game, I want to sleep for like three days. I don't know how the people do it every single night for six months for 20, 30 years, however long they do it. It's, it's a really hard job, especially if you're doing it every night to have something new and interesting uh, to say, especially if it's a team that's lousy and, and uninteresting. I, I have gained so much respect. Um, the guys who do it well, the men and women who do it well are, are incredible at this job. And I think the overall talent level has, has improved like a bunch of years ago there were probably a bunch of broadcasters like oh this is brutal and now there's only like maybe one or two or three that i can think of uh, of the locals everybody uh the production values are great it's so hard and i think people think it's the easiest thing to do to just show up and talk about baseball for a couple hours and as you know very well it is it is not easy (laughs) 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I'm only going to take up a few more minutes of your time. What is the, what's the next thing from a stat cast standpoint, the next, um, the next stat that we're going to be talking about, or just the next wave, um, that we should look forward to. Good timing on that. Well, it would be good timing if we had a baseball season, but this is actually just announced officially uh, a couple weeks ago at the Sabre Analytics Conference in, in Arizona, which I guess was mostly done via Zoom meeting this year. Um, there is a new hardware technology that will be powering StatCast. So for the first five years, it was a combination of a TrackMan radar and a couple of Kyron Higo cameras. Uh, they did really well for the first version, but uh, as I'm sure anybody's uh, familiar with it has seen you know sometimes things don't get tracked they don't have a distance on a home run so there is a new hardware partner um, starting with the 2020 season hawkeye if you've ever seen the instant replays for for tennis where they have the ball on the line that's them so there's a like 12 or 13 cameras now ringing each ballpark and uh, immediately what it's supposed to do uh, low-hanging fruit is is pick up more of the tracking that's been missed, right? You'll notice there's no, there's a, there's an arm strength leaderboard for catchers. Cause that was always tracked. So, uh, the first step will be improved tracking. And this is supposed to do that. The long-term step is that this is going to track so much more. For example, we don't have uh, who swings the bat the fastest because the old technology just kind of measured or, or viewed each player as essentially a blob, right? It was just like, here's your center of mass. We know this center of mass is the shortstop because that's where shortstops stand. But this is supposed to do uh, a lot more than that. It's supposed to measure limb tracking, right? So you might be able to say, well, who who gets their arms highest in the air to get a line drive? You know, not only how fast do you swing the bat, but where do you hit the ball the hardest, right? Like you've always heard, uh, let the ball get deep. Well, maybe it's actually you hit the ball 10 miles an hour harder if you get it out front. Maybe it's not the same for everybody. I don't know the answers to these questions, but this is the sort of idea we'll be able to do. Um, for pitcher motion, it'll be really cool. All right, you'll be able to see how well a pitcher uh, repeats his motion, not just his release point, but his actual soup to nuts motion, because you'll be able to track all the moving body parts. Um, so this really opens up like a whole can of worms. Very excited about it. I am for um, yeah. You mentioned the tennis thing, and I think that tennis is the best replay because someone just challenges, and you all look up at the board, and within five seconds, you see if it was in or out. How will this technology impact the automated strike zone? Well, it, it will fuel. Um, in the same way that you've seen in the past, like, you know, pitch effects to stack to TrackMan and now to Hawkeye. Um, it won't impact it in the sense that it's going to make it sooner or later to come, but it will be the technology that is the underlying, you know, gear behind it. All right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's a decision that that um, will have to be collectively bargained. But I feel like you can't do it until you know it really, really works. And so well, we're going to see it more and more in the minors in the Arizona Fall League. But yeah, that, that's true. I, I also think it's not just a technology question. Obviously, you're right. It's got to work. It's a baseball question, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like um, if you don't have to frame the ball, does the catcher even have to, to you know, crouch? Right. right. Why bother? Like, yeah. does that kill every stolen base ever if you're just standing up all the time? You know, I don't, <laughs> is there a rule that says you can't do that? I, I don't know. I'm not speaking for the league here. I'm just kind of speculating myself. But there's a lot of like unintended consequences that come from this. So it's, it's a lot of baseball questions. All right. So speaking of baseball questions, let's wrap it up with this. Um, during this um, pandemic, as we're all um, staying inside as much as we can, what have you discovered that you took for granted, whether it's about baseball or something that has nothing to do with baseball? What have you taken for granted that you can't do? 
I can tell you this, I am never ever going to complain about my subway commute to the office anymore <laughs> because, and don't get me wrong, I love my children. They're wonderful. Um, being away from them for a few hours is a gift that I, I rarely get anymore. I'm going to be so happy to get on the subway with a hundred smelly people. I'm going to be so happy to uh, rush to the office and go to an annoying meeting. You know what I mean? Just all these things and to say nothing of going outside and playing baseball and riding your bike and all the stuff you shouldn't do right now. Um, but I, I got to say, the first time we have a game with with people in attendance, and I'm really praying that happens this year, uh, it doesn't matter who's playing, it doesn't matter what time of year it is, that first game is going to be the most magical moment I can think of. Is Everybody will be watching it. It's going to be spectacular, and I, I truly can't wait for that. Yeah, you know, I, I think about when the 1989 World Series restarted, and I know there was a lot of people who said, who cares, it's been two weeks, this doesn't matter. As an A's fan, it, it mattered, but really it just mattered that that was the day that the Bay Area was back to, to normal. Um, there were still a lot of things that had to be done. There was still um, the freeways, you know, they still were clearing that. There were still bodies. Um, there were still some horrific things that happened. But that was the day that things were back to normal was when the World Series restarted, even if it was two games and the ace finished off the Giants quickly. And and I think about that's what it meant to the Bay Area. But in this case, this is going to be for the entire country for once it's back. It, I, the commissioner has said, I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, baseball is a, a threat of the country and it's it's healed, uh, you know, in past major American incidents like, you know, baseball was out through World War Two and 9-11 and, and everything you can think of. And um, I think we all hope that that can play a role in our recovery again. Yeah. All right. Last topic is uh, plug the the podcast. By the way, I listened to the one today that was ranking the uh, the top 25 World Series teams from the wildcard era. And my favorite part of that, by the way, was whenever you guys dove into this random guy played on this team. The 19, <laughs> was it the 2000 Yankees had Felix Jose and Jose Canseco and Lance Johnson played for some team that I'm forgetting now. That was my favorite part, actually, was the random players from each World Series team. Yeah, let me tell you, we are struggling for content right now. <laughs> it is the StatCast podcast. I can tell you right now, it is not very StatCast focused. It is, let's make ourselves feel better with baseball. The, the previous episode, I actually interviewed my 99-year-old great uncle, Frank Petriello, who became a Cubs fan in 1933, just to talk to him about old-timey baseball, which was actually a blast. Um, you can find it. I tweeted out uh, on my Twitter, um, Mike underscore Petriello, uh, and at MLB.com. It's called the StatCast podcast, and uh, if you like hearing us talk about baseball, please check it out. All right, Mike. Thanks so much for your time. This was awesome. Um, good to connect with you once again. I'm a big fan of your work. Keep it up. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it. That was Mike Petriello, and this is Life Around the Seams. Mm -hmm.